As long as you can hear me, we're okay. There's people talking back. It's so it's been so long. It's just been staring at a camera and then and then the polite people came back first. And so they were just, you know, very like, you know, they they nod and they smile, but they don't talk back like the McClellans do. Just kidding, sorry. You're now on YouTube forever. Let's, uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 6, and we're going to look at uh, just, just eight verses today, 12 to 20. Uh, but as you flip there, let me just pray for us. God, thank you. Thank you for this morning, and thank you for this text. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging one in that, not that it's hard to understand, but that it's very convicting for all of us. And, and so I just pray that as we read it, as we consider what you are saying to us, that we would really submit to what the Word of God says this morning. We're in a battle against culture, especially in this area. And so I pray that we wouldn't let what seems normal to us be what's correct, but may we look to Scripture to find what is true. Amen. So this morning, we're, we're back on to the, uh, the focus of sexual immorality that started in chapter 5, and then at the beginning of chapter 6, we took a slight detour, uh, and it seemed like a very different topic to address, uh, but as we mentioned last week, is, is it actually does tie in uh, very nicely, uh, and then Paul kind of comes back to it now. But before we read it, I just want to remind you of something that I said way earlier back. I think, I think it was probably uh, either the last Sunday in December or the beginning of January. Is when we're reading through Corinthians, there's going to be a few sections where you're going to notice some quotation marks. And, and this is one of those moments. You'll see right in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. It's in quotations. And, and the question we need to ask ourselves is, is why? Like typically when you see a quotation like that, it's taken from the Old Testament. Well, in this case, if you have a study Bible and you kind of look over to your margin or look underneath for a footnote, you, you, don't, you don't see that. So it, it's not a quotation from the Old Testament. And so we need to ask ourselves, oh, what are these here for? And there's going to be a few of them in our text here this morning, and it'll continue on uh, throughout the rest of this book. And, uh, and we need to ask, why are they there? What's the point of them? Uh, and as we explore that this morning, I hope what it does is it's going to give you a really good sense of a context for why Paul's written it in there. And I'll give you that uh, explanation in a few minutes. But let's, uh, let's read together these, these eight verses. So it says this, starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and, and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, 
but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, throughout this passage, Paul's going to be dealing with a, a question that should evolve in our own minds, and not even just in a spiritual sense. I'm, I'm going to use a really silly example here to get you uh, to see the point. Um, when we're younger, we tend to ask this question, can I do it? And then when we get older, that question starts to shift to, should I do it? So let me give you an example. Is my friend Rasmus here, has invited me to go snowboarding on Tuesday. Now, I'm kind of a once a year kind of snowboarder. So when I was younger, I would see, you know, the little black diamond symbol and be like, oh yeah, that sounds fun. Can I do it? Let's find out. And then you'd get hurt, right? And then you'd try it again and get hurt and do it again, right? But as you get older, and, and in this case, as I snowboard less, I don't know if I'm any wiser, I'm just older and things take a lot longer to heal, is now the question is, should I do that? And so when Rasmus goes into the trees and starts going through, I'll take the easiest way possible down because I want to have a little bit of fun, but my whole goal is that I'll be able to walk the next day. Hopefully, maturity happens like that with the rest of our lives. As we look at something when we're young, can I do it? I, I, don't, even, I don't even know if I can, but I'm going to try it. Well, let's mature and ask a question before that. Should I do it? Is it beneficial? Is it helpful for me? Will this be a good thing for us? This is how Paul begins. All things are lawful for me. And then he answers, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. So as I mentioned, these quotations, uh, why are they here? Well, there's one of two ways to interpret this, and scholars are, are pretty divided here, but at the same point, it, it, it ends up in the same place. It's just a matter of why. Either Paul made this comment, all things are lawful for me, and, and also things like food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, some of these quotations. Either Paul said them when he was there planting the church and building them up, or perhaps wrote it in a letter. We do know uh, from, I think it was last week or the week before, uh, that there is a letter before 1 Corinthians that we're, we don't have anymore. But we know that there was a letter written there. So it could have been that Paul said these things or wrote these things, but the Corinthians greatly misunderstood them, and so Paul's now correcting them. Or alternatively, it could just be some kind of a slogan that was popular within the church. Um, but either way, Paul's point is, is not to say whether he said it and then correct it, but correct the logic behind the statement. So it's not really all that important whether Paul said it or whether the church just uh, was living kind of this way. The point is that all of these quotations, Paul's going to correct because they have just a, a terrible misunderstanding behind them. Now this error, all things are lawful for me, is, is not unique to the Corinthians. In fact, it's not even unique to the early church. This is rampant in our culture as well. It's everywhere. Galatians 5 verse 1 says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. 
Now, this verse has been twisted so many times by people. They will use it to say, I'm free to do whatever I want. Christ's blood has set me free so I can live however I want and do whatever I want. But according to the text there, if you look into the, the context of it, it's you're actually free from sin. You're free from this obligation or, or the bondage, I should say, of having to give in to sin and temptation because now we have a new nature. We've been given the Holy Spirit. We no longer are uh, no longer in bondage under this, I have to give in to sin over here, but we can say, no, I, I can live by the power of the Spirit. And I can submit to him, and he can lead me into righteousness. The, the correct way to think about this would be, I'm actually free to practice righteousness. Not free to live however I want. Now, as I've studied through the book, my guess is that pro Paul probably did say something like this. All things are lawful for me. And the only reason I'm saying that is because when you read through all of Paul's letters, that logic is there. Paul's looking at it saying, you're not obligated to follow all of these rituals and feasts and new moons and all of these things. Uh, he argues a lot, and we're, we're going to talk about that in a few weeks with, uh, in chapter 10 with meat sacrifice to idols. And he says, you have freedom in Christ to eat those things. So my guess is he probably did say something like it. Richard Pratt says this, admittedly there is a measure of truth in these words. Followers of Christ have been set free from the pedantic legalism of the world. Spirituality must not be confused with its long list of rules regulating what Christians may eat, drink, and touch. In these matters, believers have liberty of conscience. Even so, this is not the sense in which the Corinthians meant these words. They used their slogan to support immoral practices, and Paul would not stand for that. The freedom that we have in Christ, uh, as I mentioned, is the freedom to practice righteousness. It's, it's the freedom to love each other and to care for each other. And as I was kind of studying through this verse, uh, I was reading something by Daniel Pryor, and he was talking about how those who are truly free in Christ, those who recognize that they're free, they don't need to lord it over others. They simply recognize it and seek to honor God through it. And he actually says it this way, and I thought this was really interesting. He says, the man who has to express his freedom is actually in bondage, is actually in bondage to the need to show he is a free man. Let me just read that again, because I think that's very insightful. The man who has to express his freedom is actually in bondage to the need to show he is a free man. Right? It's, it's overcompensating. And, and we've all seen that. We've all probably been guilty of that in various parts of our lives, is we think we know something, so we overcompensate so much to try and prove that we know it. And all we're proving to everyone around us is they don't actually think they know what they think they know. I'm not sure if I said that right, but you know what I mean. Perhaps it... it it's easier to explain it the way that my parents said, and I'm assuming you who are parents have said this too, just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. There's, there's so much truth in a statement like that. Yeah, maybe we, we have the freedom in Christ to do something, but that doesn't immediately make it that it's wise. That doesn't immediately mean that we should go about and do that. We have to ask, is it beneficial for our spiritual life? Is it beneficial for my relationship with Christ? You know, ultimately, the free man realizes that it's not about himself, but it's about God. 
Verse 13 has kind of a strange analogy here, but Paul thinks, uh, excuse me, scholars think that the reason Paul writes this analogy is because Corinthians were arguing that sex is basically just like eating. It's a normal bodily craving that we should satisfy. Does that sound very much like our own world right now? You don't have to go far for sex to be all over the place and in your face. You can't even go to the grocery store and stand in line without magazines just sitting there. You can't turn on your TV. Even now when you are halfway through a three-minute clip on YouTube of something funny, some ad pops up. Is We're just inundated with it. It's everywhere. It's all around us. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, is a danger that we have is we've become desensitized to those things. There was a test that uh, I was challenged to do once is watch a movie by yourself and then consider how, you know, clean it was and you kind of just make some notes. And then watch that movie again with your parents and then see if those answers change or if you turn a little bit of red or if you get a little uncomfortable. It's so often when we're by ourselves, we watch something and we think, God, that's that's pretty good. And then all of a sudden, someone who's around us like our parents who, you know, you wanting to please and you realize, man, there's so much in there that, that shouldn't be there. So secular culture promotes sex as, as just a normal part of our day-to-day lives. And, and the argument is that you wouldn't not eat because you need it, so why would you deprive yourself from sex? That's just uh, a normal thing. Well, the Bible disagrees uh, vehemently with that. Paul says that your body is not meant for sexual immorality. No, it is meant for the Lord. Let me, let me be clear here, just so I don't make you think I'm saying something that I'm not intending to say. Sex is not a bad thing. In fact, according to Scripture, it's a beautiful thing that God has created and given to mankind to be enjoyed within the correct context. And the Bible spells that context out very, very plainly. Within the confines of a marriage between a man and a woman. When sex is used out of that context, which God created, it becomes one of the most dangerous things that we have. It has damaged many, many people. It has hurt many people. Paul argues that two actually become one here. He goes back to the Genesis uh, account of this and says, when you connect your body in a sexual act with somebody else, you are actually sharing the most intimate part of you with them and you become one. So why would you share this over and over and over with many different people? The problem is culture has lost sight of the meaning of sex and it's become just this physical act when God created it to be so much more. It's an emotional act and and even it is a spiritual act. Paul says that you are united with Christ and and would would you... share Christ with a prostitute and unite them together. And he says one of the most direct words, he says, never, never. Now, while this is the specific circumstance happening there with prostitution uh, with the Greek gods in, in Corinth, that's maybe not something that we face as much. But our issue in our culture is, is casual sex. Sex to just fulfill a need for a moment in my life and have multiple partners as I wait around for the right person. 
Well, if we have that kind of an attitude, the problem is the right person never comes along. When we unite ourselves to someone, we dishonor Christ. When we unite ourselves to someone outside of the context in which God has created it, we dishonor him. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So do we eat and do we drink? Yes, because those are things that we need. But Paul says we do it within a context of realizing that it's not about me. It's about what I do with my body, with my life. Am I going to point everything to Christ or am I just going to selfishly say, I need, I want, so I should get. Remember, the Corinthians to this point in their own arrogance think they've arrived at some kind of spiritual maturity that nobody else is at. And so they just think they can, they can do whatever they want. Paul's been correcting it in, in various ways. Now, it, at the end of verse 12, Paul says that he will not be... Uh, enslaved to anything. Some translations say it this way, I will not be mastered by anything. Nothing should control us. But the reality is we know that there are many addictions and many people struggle with that. And, and the funny part, it's not funny, the, the unique part about that is that once somebody admits their addiction, they realize that it's destroying and wrecking their life. They actually want to change. They don't want any part of that addiction and yet the body, the mind, and there's lots of research all about this. It's, it's not just as simple as just walking away and going, I'm done. When we allow these things into our lives and when addiction becomes part of our lives, it is a very dangerous thing. And actually, sexual addiction is one of the number one addictions in North America today. Frank Thielman notes this. The Corinthians have adopted from the culture around them the idea that the body is permitted to have anything that it craves. But Paul knows that human desires are tainted with sin, which uses these desires to master the person for its own evil purposes. We have to remember we are in a spiritual war. Satan does not want us to honor God, and so he's going to tempt us in every way possible he can for us to fall. And when we give in to something that we know is wrong, we, we can either repent and turn and run back towards God, or we can justify it in our own mind. Well, you know, someone, I have a friend who's done this, or this is, this is just a normal thing that happens in our culture now. Let me even just say this. Is there's a research that was done by the Pew Research Company um, last year, and last of August, so August of 2020. And it shows that over half of Christians, and this is Christians across the whole spectrum, right? So not just one denomination, but everyone. Over half of Christians think that casual sex is okay. It's okay. It's just a normal part of culture. Over half of people who claim to believe what this book teaches us, and it's very clear what the book teaches us, it's not, it's not in question at all. We have to stand out different than the culture. We have to look at this from the way that God has designed it. Now, I always argue that marriage is actually the greatest example of Christ's covenant relationship with his church. So our marriage literally shows other people what it's like to belong to the family of God. That's what your marriage is for. You honor God in your marriage, and others see it and go, man, that's, that's the kind of relationship I want and I need ultimately with God. We don't allow culture to determine what's true. We allow the Bible 
Richard Pratt writes it this way. He says, God is the ultimate authority for determining how humans must behave. He is the master over all nature, and his word must regulate how humans live. Let me just take a real quick side note here. Is I've had many, many people come to me, and they've said th- they've, they've been in a situation that is wrong, that they've dealt with, and, and they justify it with this way of, well, God told me it was okay. But did the word of God tell you it's okay? Because the reality is, is I listen to my own voice way more than I listen to God. That's an unfortunate reality that I have to face, and I think all of us do. But God does not contradict God. And so when God says, this is the context for marriage, and it goes all the way back to Genesis, right? This is not some new thing. This is, this is God's plan for human history. This is God's plan for joining man and woman together. This is not something that has evolved and shifted and changed. Culture has evolved, shifted, and changed, but God's plans have not. And so we can't say, well, well the Holy Spirit is, is saying that it's okay for me to do this, not if it contradicts the Bible. The Word must regulate how humans live. The Bible is our authority. The Bible is God's Word written to us, and God does not contradict God. So if you think something's okay that is clearly wrong biblically, then you're listening not to God's voice, but your own voice. Now, Paul uses kind of this this interesting body analogy, and and it's not super, super clear exactly what he means at times. So let me just give you a little bit of context. In Greek thought at this point, the body was something that ended at death. The Corinthians had bought into this idea, so it was kind of, you could do whatever you wanted with your body because only the soul uh, mattered. Only the soul rose again, but your body was just destroyed. But you can see here, Paul argues that the body is terribly important because your body, just like Jesus's, will be resurrected. Now, I'm, I kind of went on a, a rabbit trail when I was studying through this because Jesus rises from the dead, appears to his disciples. But then later on in Scripture, we read about Jesus' glorified body. And, and it looks a little bit different than his physical body. And all my research proved to me this. I don't really know what our glorified bodies are going to look like. So it was kind of a waste of a rabbit trail for me and my time. But the point being here is that Paul says your body matters because your body is going to be resurrected. And so you need to care for it. God has given you this body, so honor him with how you live. And now this goes way beyond sex. This happens to be the specific issue Paul's dealing with. But this goes way beyond that. Our, our eating habits in our culture, that's a huge problem. Our exercise habits. Um, basically, any way in which we care for our body needs to be considered. Now, again, you can take everything too far, right? So I'm not wise. I was just going to say something funny, but I think I better not because I don't want to accidentally offend anybody. Um, But how we choose to eat, how we choose to live, there's many ways in which we can do that and do that where we honor God. There's not, you know, you don't need to have one specific diet or one specific exercise routine. None of those things. However, on the alternate extreme is if you care only for your body and you work so hard at it, then you neglect you're spiritual. Paul says to Timothy, right, that bodily, val- or bodily training is of some use, but godliness is of all use. It, has, it matters here and in eternity. And so for us, we need to realize that Paul didn't say, don't worry about your body. 
He says, your body's important. Take care of it. But your spiritual life is, is even more important. And so don't think of it in the sense of, I have to be so careful, like, like I shouldn't go snowboarding because I might break my leg. Okay, well, that's maybe true. Uh, but I'll go see Lori if I break a knee, and then it'll all be better. Maybe I shouldn't plan for that. Um, but the reality is, right, is, is there are risks in our day-to-day life. We get up and we get in a car and we drive somewhere. That's, that's a risk, and it's a risk that we take. And there's lots of ways in which we, you know, make sure that we're safe and we're careful, but we also have to live the life that we live. So it's not a matter of being fearful of everything, but it's not a matter also of just being like, oh, it doesn't matter. I can just do whatever I want. And, you know, like I've heard the explanation, well, God knows when I'm going to die, so it doesn't really matter what I do. Kind of like saying God didn't give you a brain, right? He gave you a brain. You're supposed to use it. You're supposed to exercise wisdom. You're supposed to consider how you live. Paul says what you do now matters. And then in verse 18, he says this, and, and there's very few things where the word flee is found in the Bible, but he says flee from sexual immorality. And it says this several times in the Bible. The only other one that I could find was flee from adult, or, uh, idolatry. And according to Greek uh, thought is idolatry and sexuality went very close, hand in hand. So Paul says, to flee from this. To run in the opposite direction. It reminded me of the Greek word for repentance, which means to turn 180 degrees and walk the other direction. Now this one is a little bit more urgency. Flee from it. In Galatians 5, Paul writes this in verse 16. He says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When we turn and when we follow after God, those those selfish and sinful desires that we have, they start to lessen because we're running after the King, not after our own selfish desires. And so again, what is this freedom that we've been given? The freedom to have the freedom to run after Christ and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do that, that we might let go of things. Now, I want to say something very, very direct and very clear. Sex is something that, again, our culture has elevated so highly that it's something on our minds so often. But let me just say this. Sex will not bring some kind of long-term satisfaction to your life. If you use it out of the context in which God has given you, it will not bring you satisfaction. In fact, what it will bring is guilt, shame, and probably a hardening heart towards God and towards others. Right? It will feel good in the moment, but like all sin, it will actually start to create bondage on us. Paul says, don't do that, but live by the Spirit. Run away from sexual immorality. And then he says that sexual sin is in, unique and that other sins are committed outside the body, but the person who sins sexually sins inside their body. Now, it's a difficult sentence, and, and there's various interpretations of what Paul's getting at here. But as I kind of think about it and the flow of thought here, what I think Paul's trying to do is he's highlighting a couple of things. First, the danger of this sin, sexual sin, is that you actually partner with somebody else in this. So let me try and and explain it this way. Is when you lie to somebody, you are deceiving them and you are keeping them from the truth, but they're not really complicit in that lie. They're not a part of it. But when you sin sexually, you are entering that sin with somebody else and two are sinning together. 
So I think that's one thing that Paul's trying to do here. The other thing I think he's trying to do, and again, just based on the flow of thought, is that when we sin on the outside, it doesn't affect us the same way as when we sin on the inside because we carry those scars. Right? So think of it this way. If you, you know, you've... uh, had many sexual partners throughout your life, and then you enter into a relationship with someone that you're like, man, I, I want to I be married to this person, is there's a lot of damage that has been done. Can it, can it be redeemed? Absolutely. God can redeem anything. But that doesn't mean it happens overnight and it happens easily. There's lots of work to do. There's lots of hurt that both of you are going to have to overcome. There's going to be um, uh, trust issues. There's going to be... Um, all kinds of problems in there. And I think that's the other thing of what Paul is getting at. The scope of this sin has the potential to do so much more damage than many others. Now again, all sin, yes, all sin is equal. And when we stand before God, if we have not submitted our knee to Christ, it's not as though one sin is going to be the, well, maybe I should say that differently. It's not as one sin more than another is going to be the reason that we fall short. It's sin in general. That's the reason that we fall short. But what Paul is talking about all through this book so far is he's trying to been trying to say this. You as Christians in Corinth, you as Christians in Corinth, and, and us as Christians here, you should know better than to live the way the world does, than to give in to what the world gives into. You are different. Right? He says it this way, and I've quoted this before. You were bought with a price. You are not your own. Once we become a Christian, as we submit to the authority of the Holy Spirit, and we say, Jesus, I'm not my own anymore. I live for you now, not for me. I live so that I would bring you honor and glory, and we know very clearly what things don't bring honor and glory to God. It says it right in his word. We just have to read it but not read it the way that culture reads it and go, oh, but this is outdated and old. But to look at it and say, these are the things that God has told us. This is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to act. There's reasons for it. And, and I'll say this, is sex within the confines of marriage, that is going to provide you the most fulfillment that sex could ever do because that's the way that God has created it. That's the way that God has intended it. And if he created it, then doesn't he know what its purpose is? Will we submit to that? Over and over, Paul says this, do you not know? Do you not know? And and again, he says, do you not know here that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? He's trying to argue, the Holy Spirit is within you. So how you live and how you act matters because you are a representation. You are a little ambassador of Christ. So how are you going to live? Are you going to live in a way that honors Christ with your words and with the way that you act with your body, or are you going to try and dichotomize them and say that, well, the body is just going to rot, so it doesn't matter? That sounds a lot like justification of what we already think we believe, not somehow coming to a conclusion based on what Scripture teaches. Paul concludes by saying this last sentence, so glorify God in your body. And he starts with the negative And then he ends with the positive. He says, you are doing this, and and don't you understand? And now he says, just do this. Don't 
think, can I think, should I? Am I acting in a way that will show others that I belong to Jesus Christ? Or am I acting in a way that others just see, there's someone who says he believes something, but clearly lives differently. Like I said, the truth of this text is not complicated. But the practice of it can be, especially when we live in a world where half of Christians believe that social sex is no big deal. We are always meant to stand out, to be unique, and to honor God with how we live. Let me just say it this way, real simple. Our own selfish desires, they always get us in trouble. Always. They always hurt us. They always hurt other people. They hurt our relationships with other people and ultimately with God. But never when you are following after Jesus will those things happen. Life will still be difficult. You'll still have challenges and pains and frustrations and hurts and all those things, but you will have a greater sense of fulfillment because you know that you are following after what God wants you to do. As as Francis Chan always says, right in that big rope analogy, if you remember that, is we only live on this earth for this long, and we're preparing for everything else that comes for eternity. So why give in to selfish desires now for this long to have all those consequences? When we can restrain ourselves, we can live by the power of the Spirit so that we can have an eternity with Jesus. So as we, just, as we move into a time of communion here, I just, I just want to say this as clearly as I can. Is our bodies matter. How we act matters. And just because you're married doesn't mean that you can't dishonor God with your bodies. You still can. You can still live very selfishly. So the issue is not get married and there's no problem here. The issue is submit to the Lord. So I want, and this is very direct, I realize that, but I want each one of us to consider this and to say, am I honoring God with my body? What am I doing in my current lifestyle that needs to stop because it dishonors Christ? If that's some kind of a similar issue here, if you're having sex outside the confines of marriage, then God has warned us. Don't do that. I have a better way. If it's some kind of addiction that we have that's constantly pulling us away from Christ and towards our addiction where we think, I need that instead of this, then we need to seek help. Again, it's not just as easy as saying, I'm done, I'm just going to stop and I move on. Seek help. There are people that love you and care for you and want to help you. Whatever we do, as Paul says, whether in word or deed, do it for the glory of God. Let's pray and then we'll enter into a time of communion together. God, thank you for these verses and and the reminder that they give us. You have a way, you, you have created us and you have created us specifically and uniquely. And God, all of our relationships, you have kind of uh, the perfect way to do those things, and so often we turn away from them. And so God, I pray that, that in this specific issue of sexual immorality that is rampant in our culture, and not just secular, but in the Christian church as well, we pray that we would be willing to submit to what Scripture says, 
to your design for sex. God, for other addictions that, that probably all of us have faced in various ways at various times, we pray that we would seek the help that we need. That we would learn through repetition to submit to you and not to the addiction. So that we can be free of those things. And that's the freedom that Paul is talking about in Galatians. God, would you give us the strength that we need to do what is right, even when it is so blatantly different to what our culture lives like? And God, I actually think that's good because that'll show our culture that we are not our own. We will not just gratify our own selfish desires because we no longer belong to us, but we belong to you. God, as we move into a time of communion, we're reminded that the only reason we can find freedom from any of this stuff is because Jesus went to the cross. That he bore the punishment for our sin. That he paid the penalty that I and that each of us owed. And so God, we thank you that Jesus was willing and that he did that and that he atoned for our sins so that now we can repent and we can turn towards you. We can receive the Holy Spirit and we can find freedom from a broken and fallen world. So God, as we consider the bread and the cup in these moments, just pray that it would really impact our hearts. That it wouldn't just be some kind of an intellectual knowledge, but that we would consider these things deeply and that we would choose to honor you, not our own selves. Amen. You can just flip ahead a, a few pages to 1 Corinthians 11, and we'll read it 23 in just a moment. And if you're at home and, and you have forgotten, uh, by all means, you can hit pause and, and quickly grab what you need to grab. Oh, and I need to grab what I need to grab, too. So let me read to us from verse 23 of chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now you can see exactly from what we've already talked about this morning, there's a connection here, right? Is, is Yes, this is a symbolic act, but it's also because we're tied together with Christ. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty considering the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now we'll deal with some of those specific unique things that were happening in the church at Corinth. But what it says is Whoever does this in an unworthy, manny, unworthy manner will be guilty considering the body and the blood of the Lord. It, sin is serious. Right? Like this isn't a little thing. As Jesus went to the cross, 
for us in our place because of how we rejected him. And so if we just come to a specific text like we read this morning or, or we come to communion and it's just this no big deal, this is just normal stuff, we're missing the whole point. We need to look to him and we need to say, God, show me where I need to be corrected. There's not more of a scary prayer, I think, that exists than that. Right, David says, search my heart and show me if there's any grievous way in me. Our lives need to be about maturity, growing more like Christ. The only way we do that is by saying, God, what is in my heart that need not be there? Then we remind ourselves that my sin and, and the wickedness that's in my own heart, it doesn't mean that I'm going to hell because I have Christ in my life. That should give us such gratitude and thankfulness for the cross. And I hope then a very serious way in which we approach our spiritual life where it's not just some willy-nilly thing. It's not just some whatever. This is deeply, deeply meaningful. So let's take the bread and I'll pray for it and then we'll eat it together. God, as we hold in our hands this, these little crackers or pieces of bread, whatever we have, we are reminded that this is representation of you. And as we've read this morning of the partnership that we have with you now, that we have become one in spirit with you because we have repented and turned towards you. God, remind us that we could not pay the penalty for our own sin. Only Jesus could. He went to the cross to give up his body so that we might have life. God, would we consider the, the seriousness of that? Would our spiritual lives be the most important thing that we would want to grow and become more like Jesus? So as we take this bread, as we break it, and as we eat it, we eat it in remembrance of what you have done for us, the, the very thing that we could not do for ourselves. God, we love you. We thank you. Amen. So Jesus took the bread, he broke it, and he ate it. So let's eat in remembrance of him. Let's pray for the cup. God, thank you that Jesus' blood was pure and was holy and was the only thing that could wash our sin away. And God, when we think of the cross and we think of the agony that Jesus had to endure for it, the word grateful doesn't even come close to what we feel. The fact that you loved us more than we could ever understand. That you were willing to bear the punishment of all sin. It's just something that is so overwhelming. So God, as we hold this little cup in our hands, this juice that reminds us that your blood 
atone for our sins. We say thank you in, in the deepest possible terms we can think of. And as we've discussed at length today, would it change the way in which we choose to live? The way we choose to talk and the way that we choose to act and use our bodies. May we glorify you in all that we do. We love you. Amen. The cup represents Jesus' blood. The only sacrifice that could atone for our sin. Let's drink in remembrance of him. God, as we go from this place, whether that mean the physical place of the church building here or where other people are in their own homes, but as they shift on to the rest of you know daily tasks and, and things that have to be accomplished and, and just all the things that we're going to do today, we just pray that as we live our lives, that we live our lives in remembrance of you. That even as we seek enjoyment and fun in the things that, that we will be doing, that we would do it with the realization that you are involved in every step of the journey with us. And that we can honor you in every circumstance that we find ourselves in. So God, may we live for you this week and not ourselves. Go with us. Guide us, direct us, and give us opportunities to show your love to others. Amen. Thank you all for joining us. And, and a reminder, as, as Laurie mentioned, um, we can have uh, 22.5 people. So I'm not sure how we're going to classify that 0.5. But we hope those numbers do increase. We have lots of room uh, in here, right? 15% is a pretty small number. It's better than I did in high school chemistry, but that's a different story. Um, and so if you would like to attend, uh, just let me know. And we'll mark you and down, so you and, like and I know, attend, uh, I know those who are here are encouraged when they come and they get to see a few people. So we look forward to seeing you next week. Have a wonderful beginning of March.